Hello, and welcome to Power Pros Podcast, episode 180. I'm your host, former Nintendo Power Senior Editor, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and with me is my co-host and nemesis, former Nintendo Power mascot, Pete Michaud. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, Chris. Glad to have you back, Pete. Thanks for my humble introduction. As always, we are here to talk about what's going on in the world of Nintendo, and that means some game impressions, some news, and then this week's big topic, which is 30 years of the Game Boy. Can't believe it's been 30 years. Yeah, 30 years already. Three whole decades. However, before we get to that, let's kick things off with some game impressions, starting with a title that came out last month. It's been out for a few weeks, but I finally just got my hands on it recently. That is Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3, The Black Order. Oh, cool. You've been playing through this? I put a couple hours into it, and so far what I'm discovering is that it is pretty much just what you would expect from a Marvel Ultimate Alliance game. (laughs) You get some top-down brawling action with light RPG elements featuring a boatload of your favorite Marvel characters, and it is absolutely not what you would expect from Nintendo. You would never guess this was by Nintendo just from playing it. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of crazy. Yeah, it doesn't really feel Nintendo-y at all. Ultimately, it is kind of a button-mashing spaz fest. <laughs> In a lot of ways, it's a brawler, a beat-em-up, but there's really no give-and-take to your attacks. Enemies are kind of just damage sponges and soak it up and don't react, so it's not very satisfying in that regard. And it's probably not really meant to be played that way. I think you're supposed to just wade into a mass of enemies and unleash all your superpowers and special attacks and combos until no one is left standing. (laughs) But that sounds fun, too. Right. That's not to say that there isn't fun to be had here. I mean, it does have lots of your favorite Marvel characters. It's got Captain America and Iron Man and Hulk and Thor and Spider-Man and then that other Spider-Man and that other other (laughs) Spider-Girl and Daredevil and Iron Fist and Venom and Wolverine and Luke Cage and Scarlet Witch. Wow. And all the Guardians of the Galaxy and someone named Crystal, who I have no idea who that is. (laughs) So, yes, It's got plenty of Marvel goodness in there. A lot of the designs for this game look really cool. The voices, on the other hand, are kind of a mixed bag. Some (laughs) of them sound and look very much like their movie counterparts. Hmm. Some absolutely do not. Nick Fury does kind of sound like Sam Jackson, but it's like this jive-talking Sam Jackson, not the serious (laughs) Sam Jackson. Don't give me no back-talk, sucker. Uh, Something like that. (laughs) But yeah, it's got... Lots of character in there to enjoy. Personally, I like playing as the Hulk the best. He's just big and powerful. He yep. can inflict a lot of damage. And I did spend my entire time playing this game in co-op mode. And I think that's really where the fun is. You yeah. know, you can just sit back with a friend, especially a friend who enjoys this Marvel stuff, and just have a blast. I could easily see it getting repetitive in single-player mode, but it is rather enjoyable to partner up and just wail away on the bad guys with a buddy. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, what a perfect game for Switch. Uh, Yes, it certainly makes sense for that system. I mean, even so, you know, despite having a good time playing it with a friend, you know, there were some drawbacks. Like, I can't count the number of times we lost track of what was going on, and we're like, (laughs) where's my character? I don't know, where's my character? I mean, they're like these big colored circles underneath the player characters, but even with that going on, it was hard to keep track of what's happening with so much chaos and so many enemies and so many special effects happening all at once. The camera would also have issues from time to time, and there were some really cheap enemy attacks. Like, once I got caught in this gas cloud... And it just kept hitting me over and over and over again, nearly drained out almost all my health before I was able to get away from it. It was just just continuous damage. It was very, very annoying. Yeah, that's not fun. Also, in addition to that, the writing and story are decidedly B-level. The plot doesn't necessarily make sense, but that sort of comes with the comic book territory sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it does. Anyway, despite the game lacking that Nintendo polish in a lot of ways, it is still pretty fun to get in there and just mindlessly beat the crap out of tons of enemies. It's a little bit bland, it's a little bit generic from a gameplay perspective, but it does deliver on that Marvel promise, and it serves its purpose as a multiplayer experience. I would say this game is definitely played best with a cold glass of milk, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Well, plus they have the original uh, comic book character outfits, so that's pretty cool. No, I didn't try any alternate outfits, but uh, that's definitely cool to know about. 
The other game I've been playing recently on Switch is Grandia HD Collection. Oh, I know you're super into this. Was it all that you'd been waiting for? Well, I was certainly looking forward to it quite a bit. I'm a big fan of game art, and I do like RPGs a lot, but I didn't really know what to expect, except these were a couple of classic games that I never got to play back in their day, and I'm glad to be able to experience them now. Those games, of course, being Grandia and Grandia 2, now with modernized graphics and enhanced sound and modernized controls and more language options. So first up, we have Grandia. And this came out in North America originally in 1999. And they really don't make them like this anymore. (laughs) Uh, For better and worse, probably. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. The game starts off, at least, as this sort of lighthearted and carefree, adventurous romp. The world is at peace, there's no war, there's no evil threats. The protagonists are two kids named Justin and Sue, and basically they just want to go around and be adventurous, and Justin wants to follow in the footsteps of his father and uh, go and do great and exciting things. (laughs) They're also really annoying kids. Justin is basically an idiot, and Sue just follows him around and makes snarky remarks. (laughs) So kind of like you and me. Yes, something like that. (laughs) I don't know who is who in this scenario, but I'll think about that later. Anyway, this adventure stuff they want to do means they're going to go across the sea to explore the new world, and they're going to encounter whatever they find there. But before they do that, they visit some ancient ruins, they explore a mine full of spiders and other bad things, and put a stop to a ghost ship while traveling across the sea. They meet other adventurers, they pay their dues as sailors, and they set off on their own way away from their families. What happens after that? I don't really know. I'm about eight hours in. But there is some sort of shady, sinister government involved, and you're trying to learn about some ancient, mysterious civilization, and I have no doubt that it's all going to come together in the end. Hmm. Uh, Since this is essentially a coming-of-age story, I also really hope that Justin and Sue do mature and evolve a bit, because, man, they really are irritating. (laughs) Amazing. Speaking of annoying, man, the voices in this game? Wow. (laughs) They are pretty darn bad. They were recorded 20 years ago, and man, you can totally tell. Is it straight up voiceover, or is it like just like intermittent, you know, where they just use little clips here and there? It's just little clips here and there. Some scenes are fully voiced. Other parts are not voiced at all. Okay. The visuals, you know, they are pretty ancient as well, but they have really improved the sprites and the textures. They've been cleaned up and smoothed out. But man, you can really tell the architecture is primitive. That is from a PS1 game. Everything is very angular and very, you know, sharp and pointy. Trees, you know, (laughs) they're lucky if they have eight sides. (laughs) Nice. Uh, It's also kind of annoying that you have limited character-specific inventory space. Each character can only hold 12 items And, you know, that includes any extra equipment or any healing items you need in battle. So coping with that is sort of an old school annoyance that uh, I didn't have a great time putting up with. (laughs) I might pass this one. But still, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's all bad. The game does have some very unique, upbeat storytelling and a colorful presentation. And that stuff is all very charming and welcome in this day and age. It's not really something you see anymore. And the battle system is really fast and really fun. As we talked about last time, it is a combination of real-time movement and a time-based gauge, and your attacks all combined with menu-based commands, and it works really well. The ability to use critical strikes to stop enemy attacks from happening adds some strategy, although I have to say, I wasn't very effective and good at making that work the way I wanted it to. (laughs) So yes, the game does feel 20 years old, the character designs are totally 90s, and it does not have any modern accoutrements or convenience options like Final Fantasy VII does. But on the other hand, it doesn't crash all the time on me like Final Fantasy VII does. <laughs> right. So, yes, the game shows its age, but if you're up for something retro and different, it certainly does have some charm and appeal. Huh. That's pretty cool. And as for Grandia 2, this one does feel a bit more modern since it's from the GameCube era rather than the PS1 era. Hmm. But, you know, you can still tell, yeah, this is a product of its time as well. In this game, though, you play as Ryudo, who is a mercenary, and uh, he's accompanied by his talking bird friend, Sky. And he is not exactly a fun-loving adventurer like Justin. In fact, he is a huge jerk. <laughs> 
I'm not sure what's up with Grandia and Game Arts wanting its protagonist to be super unlikable, but I don't know. Here we are. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, this one I haven't played quite as much as the first Grandia, but early in the game, Ryudo is supposed to escort a sister of the church for some ceremony, but then after he does that, some crazy stuff goes down, like, you know, evil forces of hell and darkness all suddenly return, and there's chaos and death. And so, you know, right off the bat, there's a lot more action and a lot more drama, and it's, you know, a lot more conventional than Grandia 1, really, but probably a lot easier for people to get into. Yeah, it makes sense. Like I said, I haven't played it a lot yet, but it does feature basically the same enjoyable battle system of Grandia 1. I don't think the characters move quite as quickly. The game also features much more detailed graphics with uh, 3D characters and vastly improved models and textures. But yeah, I do have to warn you, it is still showing its age. It's like you know, 15 years old. So a lot of the animations and character movements are awfully stiff. Yeah, I can see that. So you take it all together, you wrap it all up, you package it together, you get these two games. They are not sold separately at present. Grandia HD Collection is only a bundle, and the price is 40 bucks. Nah, that's not too shabby. Well, I mean, I would think people might consider it a little steep for just two retro games, but on the other hand, you do get a ton of hours of gameplay out of these, I would imagine. How much you actually enjoy all those hours of gameplay, I think that will depend entirely on your interest in retro-style, polygonal RPGs. Personally, I'm glad to finally have these games on Nintendo systems, and I do look forward to continuing my adventures to see what I've been missing out on for all these years. Yeah, this doesn't sound like it's totally for me, but, uh, you know, I'm glad that it exists, and, uh, you know, who knows, maybe I'll pick them up at a discount. Yeah, I do recommend picking it up for anyone who has a retro RPG itch to scratch. Sounds like you. But I think they make some cream for that. And that does take care of our game impressions for this week, so why don't we move along to some news. First up in the news this week, we have an update on the next Shantae game for Switch, which is now known as Shantae and the Seven Sirens. Uh, full disclosure, I am indeed still doing work for and being paid by WayForward, although I am not being paid to say any of this. But yes, Shantae and the Seven Sirens has now been officially unveiled. Previously, back in March, it was just called Shantae 5, and there were no details. But now WayForward has revealed plenty. We know it is a non-linear, Metroid-style adventure in an interconnected world. We know it features all-new instant transformation abilities that are used to explore this world, including a Newt transformation. We know it's set in a new tropical island environment. We know that visually it looks very similar in style to Half Genie Hero, but the backgrounds are now in 2D. And we know there will be a new collectible card aspect to the game, sort of similar to the soul collecting in Castlevania games that you can use to power up Shantae. We also know that despite the new setting, many familiar characters are returning, including Roddy Tops the Zombie and Pete's favorite, the nefarious Risky Boots. Oh boy. <laughs> there were also four brand new characters shown in the art. Are they the new half-genies? Are they the sirens in the game's title? Are they both? Are they neither? We don't know. Let's uh, stay tuned. There's also no release date for the game at the moment, but uh, I have a hunch it will be worth the wait. Pete, I know you have been playing Shantae Half-Genie Hero recently, so you know what are your thoughts on this? Are you looking forward to uh, Shantae and the Seven Sirens? Yeah, Half-Genie Hero is not half bad. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I actually am sort of more interested in this franchise than I ever have been. And it is ready for a new sequel, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. WayForward has also announced another brand new game coming to Switch. And that is a title called Vitamin Connection. It is basically a brand new IP. And it's all about co-op. Even though you can play the game solo, it is conceptually sort of like Snipper Clips in that it's really intended for co-op play. However, unlike Snipper Clips, you don't control two different characters. You and your co-op partner control this tiny craft called the Capsule Ship, and each player controls different aspects of the ship. One controls movement and shooting, the other controls aiming and the angle of the ship, and the way that each aspect is controlled is done with very different mechanics using the Joy-Cons. Well, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Also, the idea is that you are microscopic and you are going through the human body to destroy evil bacteria 
and stuff like that. Basically, it's this uh, action shooter game, but colorful and wacky and full of crazy situations. Like, one of the levels is set inside the family dog. You have to save the family dog from uh, the inside out in some crazy manner. (laughs) Uh, That actually sounds pretty fun. I know, doesn't it? Uh, Strangely, this game is actually going to be physical first for limited run games, and then sometime after that, there will be a digital version. Incidentally, both this and Shantae and the Seven Sirens will be at PAX West next week in playable form, uh, along with River City Girls. So, uh, yeah, if you are going to that, you'll have your chance to check them out. Here I thought Vitamin Connection was just a Dr. Mario spinoff. No, nothing like Dr. Mario. (laughs) Not a puzzle game, an action shooter. Make sure to get that cleared up. (laughs) Okay. And then in another bit of indie news, I was very excited to see that the 3D platformer A Hat in Time now has a release date on Nintendo Switch. Now, I feel like I've heard you talk about this game before, right? Well, I haven't talked about it much before, but I know we've received a few pieces of listener mail Uh. that were very excited about this, and that's kind of where it first came onto my radar. But yeah, this game has been out on other systems for a couple years now, and I think it was announced for Switch last year. But yeah, it's this 3D platform where you play as a little girl called Hat Kid, (laughs) and you are collecting time pieces. So lots of jumping and bouncing and grappling and using an umbrella to fight your enemies, and you can buy badges to gain new abilities and collect yarn balls that let you craft new hats, and each of those offer a different power, such as being able to run faster, or create explosive potions. And like I said, I've heard nothing but good things about this game. I've had lots of listeners tell us that this game is really, really cool. And so, you know, judging just by the word of mouth, and the fact that it has been pretty popular on other systems, I think they announced that they've sold over a million copies of this game. You know, my understanding is it is supposed to be pretty darn good, so I will definitely be getting it when it hits on October 18th. Yeah, it definitely seems like a great addition to the Switch library. Yeah, for sure. And there'll be both a physical and a digital version. The physical version comes with a code for the DLC, whereas the digital version, you have to buy them each separately. But yeah, I'm going to go with the physical on this one and uh, looking forward for some 3D platforming time jumping action. I don't really know. Looking forward to it nonetheless. Cool. I'll just steal your DLC code. Uh, Yeah, probably not. <laughs> All right. Continuing with the indie news. Earlier this week, Nintendo had a Indie World event. I don't know why they're not called it Nindies anymore. I don't know why it's called Indie World now. But nonetheless, they had a presentation <laughs> where they showed off a whole bunch of indie titles. Probably more titles than we want to get into during this podcast. But Pete, I do want to talk about what our favorite highlights of this presentation were. Yeah, sure. So what was one of your favorites? Yeah, I think at a high level, you know, the first one they showed uh, that uh, Risk of Rain 2 seemed intriguing. Really? Although they didn't really show a whole lot about it, but just the concept, uh, you know, I like my multiplayer, uh, you know, kind of roguelike, I'm not going to say Borderlands, but something along those lines where maybe you can play multiplayer and kind of team up and Hmm. face the computer. I don't know. I have severe doubts about that one. Like you said, they didn't show any actual gameplay. And they say it's sort of a 3D roguelike, but since it had this not actual gameplay tag in the corner and it just shows players getting killed over and over and over again, it says explore, loot, die, repeat. And to me, that does not sound fun. Well, if you've ever played Diablo, that's exactly the formula. So uh, that's what I'm looking for. Hmm. Didn't sound like it was going to be Diablo-esque to me, but uh, okay, I hope it is good and it is something you enjoy, and uh, you know, hopefully it's better than uh, I'm intrigued. I'm, expecting. I'm intrigued. That's as far as I'll leave that. Okay. All right. Well, as for me, the one that stood out the most was far and away Ori and the Blind Forest Definitive Edition. Oh, you're just going for the big guns right out of the gate. I am. I am indeed. That was the other one they saved for the end. But for me, that's what the whole presentation was all about, really. I mean, this is big in a lot of ways, not the least of which is it is an Xbox game coming from Xbox Game Studios. I mean, they were the publisher. It was developed by Moon Studios. But yeah, this one is coming out pretty soon on September 27th. But it used to be an Xbox exclusive, and now it is finally coming to a Nintendo platform. And so that's awesome in and of itself. But also the game is supposed to be really, really cool. It's this ethereal, Miyazaki-esque, I think it's kind of Metroid-like action-adventure game. And you're exploring this creepy but beautiful forest. And 
avoiding all these traps and monsters that are trying to kill you. It seemed in the trailer you're doing a lot of running away and avoiding boulders and icicles and lava they're trying to crush and kill you and it seems like you're smashing through a lot of obstacles as well and uh, you know there's an overabundance of spiky thorns in this forest as well as scary owls <laughs> but i've heard this game is great and it comes out in just a little bit more than a month so i am totally looking forward to this one yeah i've definitely thought about picking this game up before on uh, xbox but i am glad to see it come to switch and you know just watching the trailer it definitely piqued my interest and i was like maybe i should give this game a shot yeah it looks really cool i've heard great things about it the only issue i have is why is it coming out on the same day as dragon quest 11 that seems like folly two games i've really been wanting to play but you know i've never really had a chance arg i have to you know decide which one to play it's going to be so difficult <laughs> well just play one and then play the other anyway uh, what else <laughs> was a highlight for you yeah, I also was uh, super into the idea of Skate XL. Oh, I thought you might be. You're probably a big Tony Hawk fan, eh? Well, yeah. I mean, I like Tony Hawk. I kind of got Tony Hawk Overload, as kind of a lot of people did. But it's been a long time since there's been a good skateboarding game. And having a modern spiritual successor to something like that, you know, kind of seems well overdue. Yeah, correct. And I, I feel like it did seem um, a little bit more like maybe EA's Skate. But, you know, I, I'm interested to see what an indie developer can bring to the table where it's a little bit more, you know, raw around the edges. Okay. Yeah, I'm not really a big skateboarding game fan myself, but I do really like the idea, so I'm very curious about that one, too. Another one that piqued my interest was Eastward, which is this 2D top-down adventure game. I really couldn't quite get a grasp of it, but I really like the look of it. It's beautiful, hand-drawn 2D, and it kind of reminds me of some sort of Zelda hybrid mixed with Stardew Valley and Earthbound, which certainly sounds like a winning combination to me. Beyond that, I don't really know what it's about, but it's coming from Chucklefish and Pixpill, and it's supposed to be hitting next year. Yeah, I really dig the art style of that one. Definitely curious to see uh, if it's any good. Yep, for sure. I kind of liked uh, the look of uh, Tourist. Oh yeah, me too. Definitely. Well, know... actually, that's a lie. I actually don't like the look of it. It looks, you know, very Minecraft, which is not my favorite aesthetic. <laughs> but I thought the game still seemed pretty darn cool and very conceptually interesting. Right. I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like, I didn't think that the art style was necessarily my favorite, but I did like the way they were using it. And, uh, you know, so many games kind of have fallen into the same style that this one kind of mm -hmm. stood out to me as far as look and gameplay. So Yeah, well, the look is definitely a little bit different if you count trying to copy Minecraft different. But what I really liked about it was that you apparently get to go diving and play arcade games and do vacation-y things, but then you're also exploring dungeons in this tropical environment. So for me, it was really giving off this strong Star Tropics vibe. Oh, wow. And there are certainly worse games to emulate than Star Tropics. You know, I think we've talked about before, that game is ripe for a sequel. And if the folks at Shinen want to do a spiritual successor, and that's what The Tourist is, that sounds totally excellent to me. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, that one is supposed to hit November of this year. Another one that looked cool to me was Freedom Finger from Wide Right Interactive, which is supposed to be out this fall. And they call it a crazy space shooter, and that sounds totally accurate because <laughs> you don't play as a spaceship, you play as a hand. And you grab enemies and objects and use them as weapons, and that includes planes and tanks and even a chicken, Pete. Yes, your favorite. You can grab a chicken and use it <laughs> to blast things. Or you can just you know punch enemies, or you can throw things. You can literally give them the finger. <laughs> and it also has 8-bit levels that look like they're lifted directly out of Contra. And then it's also <laughs> supposed to have all of these uh, popular bands and be music-driven. And that sounds like a very cool aspect as well. So yeah, you put that all together, and I'm very interested in this one. Yeah, I almost mentioned this one. You know, I don't play too many uh, shooters these days, but... Yeah, same here. This one definitely stood out with the mechanics of being able to, you know, pick up anything and use it as a weapon. And, uh -huh. and then also, as you mentioned, the soundtrack. It definitely piqued my interest. Yeah, it definitely sounds just insane enough to be totally fun. Yeah, and uh, what a cool concept. Yeah. Anything else for you? I think I would be remiss not to mention that, uh, you know, even though they just came out in the store, Hotline Miami Collection, as well as Super Hot, those games are both worthy of a pickup, and I think I probably will do so. Okay, cool. Yeah, those are already out and available, and I've never really played either of those myself on any other platforms, but uh, I'm glad to hear that you have, and glad to hear they are excellent. Yeah. 
definitely check those out. The last one that really stood out to me was the game called Earth Knight, which is supposed to be out later this year from Cleversoft. And I could barely even understand what was going on in the video they showed. <laughs> yeah. It seems to sort of be a platformer where you're running around on the tops of dragons that have conquered Earth, and you're sort of bouncing off of creatures and bouncing off these dragons, and you're collecting stuff, and it seems to sort of mix 2D and 3D, and you transform into other shapes, and you're flying through things and just smashing through them, and suddenly you're riding a cow and moving nonstop <laughs> like it's an endless runner or something like that. So I don't really understand what the gameplay is. It looks very bizarre, but also very interesting. So, yeah, that one is certainly on my radar now. Yeah, all of a sudden you're running on the back of Falcor, and it's like, what is going on? <laughs> That's on? right. Yep, never-ending story for sure, for real. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff on this presentation, but uh, for me, those were definitely the highlights. Cool. Yeah, good times. In a little bit of non-indie news, though, we got word from the folks over at Square Enix that Final Fantasy VIII Remastered now has a release date. It is coming out pretty soon, less than a month away on September 3rd, at least digitally. Yeah, that's pretty soon, and uh, I'm excited to pick this one up. Yeah, me too, me too. It's been a long time since I've explored the world of Final Fantasy VIII, but I did love it back in the day. Yeah, and also, speaking of release dates... The Witcher 3 finally got a release date of October 15th. Oh, very cool. Just in time for Halloween and all the witching that might occur. <laughs> That's very true. Good point there. And yeah, I've never played this series either, but obviously I've heard great things about it. So yeah, that is cool to hear that it's going to be on its way to Switch very soon. Yeah, I'm actually really excited for this one. Even though I've already played and beat The Witcher 3, I still plan on picking this up for Switch. And then the folks over at Sega have announced a release date for Mario and Sonic at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. That is hitting Switch on November 5th. But then, in addition to the release date, they announced a new 8-bit playable mode in the game. Now, we'd actually seen this mode before. It was shown off during E3 in a video clip. At that time, we're like, what is this? Is this a cutscene? Is this a playable <laughs> game? It turns out, yes, there actually are 10 different classic-style 2D events in the game. There is... 100-meter dash, platform diving, 400-meter hurdles, gymnastics, judo, kayaking, long jump, marathon, trap shooting, and volleyball. So if you want to see, like, 8-bit Princess Peach duke it out with 16-bit knuckles and tails, <laughs> you know, you will finally get your chance. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, this is probably the most interested I've been in in a Mario Sonic game now that they've announced this. So Yeah, I've heard that from other people as good well. Good move on them. Yeah, totally, totally. All right, that takes care of our news for this week. Why don't we answer a little bit of listener mail? We only have one letter this week. This one comes from our good friend Brian Booth, and he sent a letter that he titled, You Can't Ride the Moose. <laughs> Normally, I don't read the subject lines of the emails we get, but uh, this is probably my favorite email subject line of all time. And he was, of course, referring to our discussion about what we wanted to see <laughs> in the Breath of the Wild sequel. Anyway, he writes, I know, right? You can ride a freaking bear, but you can't ride the moose or the rhino. What the heck? Really enjoyed the episode. I expected to hear a lot of the same things I've been hearing, which I definitely did, but a lot of your ideas and solutions to some of Breath of the Wild's shortcomings were really clever. I especially liked Hoff's idea for how runes could be used in a more traditional dungeon setup and the idea of reforging weapons. Maybe if each dungeon had both a rune upgrade and an unbreakable version for a specific weapon type, that would solve both issues. If Zelda truly is playable, it feels like it would be a real missed opportunity not to have two-player co-op as an option for the sequel. I would love to see that. Your thought about Link and Zelda being transported to the Golden Land is really intriguing. There's a lot of speculation still about exactly how Breath of the Wild fits into the timeline, and the official word that it comes at the end of all timelines and reunites them is a bit ham-fisted for me, narratively speaking. But the idea itself is kind of interesting. How cool would it be if we found out that the Golden Land, the Twilight Kingdom, and Low Rule are all actually in the same place, but just on different points in a sort of Dark World timeline, and we get to visit locations based on these worlds? I see, Brian. Just uh, like everything Hoff says. Go ahead. Well, sounds like someone had jelly on their <laughs> toast this morning. <laughs> I'm just playing around. But yeah, that would definitely be interesting if uh, they somehow brought all those uh, different alternate realities combined in some way into this Zelda game. It's not something I would expect, but it's definitely an interesting proposition. Yeah, whatever they do in the next Zelda game, I'm sure it is something that we will all 
enjoy and be impressed and surprised by. But uh, thanks for writing in, Brian. Yeah, just don't muck it up, Nintendo. And give us a rideable moose. And give us a rideable moose, please, and a pettable dog. Okay, that's the only letter we have this week, so it is time for us to take an intermission, mm. and then we come back. What is it, Pete? <laughs> you have a problem? Is there an issue? Yeah, I think you know what time it is. Uh, is it time for cookies? <laughs> nope. It's time to hassle the hop. Oh, yes, of course. How could I forget? Okay, Pete, in that case, let's get this over with. What do you got for me this week? Dear Video Game Professor Hoffman. Yes? What is your most memorable vacation where you had your original Game Boy with you? Ah, that is a very interesting question, Pete. I would have to say that was when I went on a cross-country trip with my family all the way back in 1991. Wow. Yeah, obviously... I was uh, still a little kid back then. I imagine you with a mustache. Is that true? I don't believe so. But uh, yeah, I considered getting a Game Boy prior to that, but it had not happened. But you know, if we're taking this long trip, we figure, okay, we definitely need some entertainment because we actually drove across country from California all the way to Illinois and back. Holy. Yeah. I mean, the thing that was also kind of making me wait because I was waiting for some good third-party games to come out in addition to the first-party stuff. So, yeah, we uh, traveled across the country, and I played a lot of TMNT. I played a lot of DuckTales, and I also played a lot of Tetris. Those were my mainstays on that trip. They certainly made this cross-country venture a lot more interesting and enjoyable than it would have been without the Game Boy. That's what the Game Boy was good for. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess if you want me to add a little bit more color to describing (laughs) this excursion, this was also the trip where we stopped in Las Vegas. I grabbed a biscuit from the breakfast buffet, stuck it in my pocket, and I still have that biscuit all these years later. (laughs) Um, That can't possibly be true. Yes. There is a 28-year-old biscuit on my shelf. In seven years, I can run for president. (laughs) I don't know whether I'm like disgusted or impressed. Well, if you ever come over, I just implore you, don't try to eat it. <laughs> I would definitely have to dip it in lots of milk. Yeah, you probably don't want to do that either. <laughs> anyway, that was possibly too much information, but I hope I properly answered your question for this week. Uh, absolutely. Okay. In that case, we'll take our intermission, and then we come back, we'll discuss our big topic, 30 Years of Game Boy. are back and we are ready to discuss this week's big topic which is 30 years of game boy the classic nintendo handheld system celebrated its 30th anniversary recently either earlier this month or late last month depending on the source but it is no exaggeration to say it changed how video games are played it was the first real portable system with interchangeable games and sure it was in four color (laughs) monochromatic pea soup green it took four AA batteries to run but it was a pretty cool system and it was great to be able to play stuff like mario or mega man anywhere you went yep it definitely wasn't the most technologically advanced handheld nope nor the most elegant but it definitely had it where it counts and that was in its library of games and its ability to uh, not eat too many batteries in one go so yes with that in mind here are 
our top 30 games for the system, and we're only talking about the black and white games, not the color games. So nothing that was on the black or the transparent cartridges that only came out once the Game Boy Color hit. We're talking strictly the classic black and white stuff. Yeah, still get mad at us if your game's not on the list. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Anyway, yeah, let's jump into it. Starting at number 30, we have the Game Boy Camera. It is not exactly a game per se, but it was a unique experience, unlike anything else at the time. Obviously, these days it's woefully outdated compared to what can be done with digital camera technology. But, you know, it was just one of those wacky, crazy Nintendo ideas that made you look up and take notice and experience something that you just really couldn't get anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, and it really also had like all these little goofy mini games and kind of was like, yeah, it reminded me of Mario Paint and even honestly what happened with the 3DS with yeah. some of these like Face Hunter games that became something that Nintendo was known for. Yeah, it was like augmented reality way before augmented reality was a thing. Yeah, exactly. I've also seen a Game Boy camera running on a Game Boy player in a Super Nintendo as a security camera in a mall. Uh-huh, interesting. <laughs> Number 29, Final Fantasy Legend. Oh, yes. Well, not a true Final Fantasy game, per se. That's right. It was originally part of Square's Saga franchise. In fact, I think it was the first game in the Saga franchise, but yes. It still had a lot to like in a portable RPG at that time. Yeah, totally. You know, it had lots of stuff to explore. It had a variety of character classes. And uh, yeah, it was certainly a great way to go if you wanted to get a portable RPG. Yeah, definitely. Coming in at number 28, we have Kirby's Pinball Land, which you know was just a really fun portable game of pinball. And okay, there were some other good pinball games on the old Game Boy, but the fact that this one starred Kirby and featured elements from the Kirby universe just gave it all that extra personality and fun and flair you'd expect from a Nintendo-published pinball game. Yep, if you like Kirby and you like pinball, you're probably going to like this one. Totally. Number 27. Super Mario Land. Admittedly, it's not the best Mario game, but for a Game Boy launch title, having a portable, brand new Mario game was pretty darn fantastic. It introduced some wacky new ideas, and it also gave us Princess Daisy. It did, and it allowed Mario to ride in all sorts of manner of vehicles, like a submarine and a biplane. And Yep, that's right. Yeah, anyways, great addition to the overall Mario library. Yeah, and it's really cool to see Super Mario Land living on in Super Mario Maker 2. That's right. So topical. <laughs> okay, number 26, Double Dragon. This is a solid adaptation of the classic arcade beat-em-up. There weren't really a ton of games in that genre on Game Boy, but this filled the niche very well by offering plenty of moves, plenty of challenge, and plenty of people to punch in the face. <laughs> Yep, Double Dragon on the go. What else could you ask for? Not much. Maybe a rideable moose. <laughs> Number 25, Tetris Attack. Yeah, this was Puzzle League before it was Puzzle League. It's simple, it's fun, it's addictive, and even though it's really kind of nothing like Tetris, it is a really excellent puzzle game, and the Game Boy version was pretty much nearly as fun as its console counterparts. Yeah, Tetris Attack is right up there with the best of the puzzle games, and uh, this version is uh, no slouch. Indeed. Number 24, Mega Man 4. There were many good Mega Man games on the Game Boy, and this was a very solid entry that mixed elements of the NES versions of Mega Man 4 and Mega Man 5. It also struck a really, really good difficulty balance. It was not insanely hard like the Game Boy version of Mega Man 3, but also not too easy like Mega Man 2. All right, number 23, Wario Land, Super Mario Land 3. Yeah, Wario went from being the bad guy to getting his own game. Yeah, this is the one where Wario is actually the main character, right? Yep. It was before he got all crazy with his different wacky invincible transformations. He was all about, uh, you know, jumping and stomping and shoulder tackling. And yeah, his first venture into being a playable character was actually pretty darn fun. Oh yeah, I'm gonna win. <laughs> Next, at number 22, we have Final Fantasy Adventure. This was the predecessor to Secret of Mana. Obviously, it was nowhere near as impressive as its sequel, but it was still a very neat action RPG for its time and set the stage for a beloved franchise. All right, number 21, Bionic Commando. 
Yeah, this was a brand new grappling adventure in the spirit of the NES and arcade games, but with all new levels. I mean, really, that formula is just a winning formula no matter how you're looking at it. The unique grappling gameplay with the bionic arm just makes it super fun, whether it's in black and white or full color or whatever. It's just a really great concept. Yep, you add a grappling hook to anything and you're going to get results. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much true. Number 20, we have Dr. Mario. That is an excellent puzzle game on just about any system, and since it only relies on three colors of viruses and pills, it works pretty darn well on the old Game Boy. <laughs> pretty crazy that it's been on everything from the original Game Boy to the iPhone, or smartphones as it were. Yeah, Dr. Mario really gets around. <laughs> For sure. Number 19, WWF Superstars. That's right, WWF Superstars. It wasn't even WWE yet. <laughs> it was still WWF. Uh, it was surprisingly fun for an arcade-style wrestling game. It only had five characters, and it wasn't very easy to pull off the fancy moves. But nonetheless, it was a very fun game with some excellent music. And believe it or not, it was made by the folks over at Rare. Yeah, I think that's even the biggest surprise about the whole thing. Yep, but with them making the game, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. It was great. Definitely. Number 18, we have DuckTales 2. Woo! Yeah, in this follow-up to the original DuckTales, you got to go to several brand new environments, including Niagara Falls, Egypt, the Bermuda Triangle, Mew, Scotland, and, uh, you know, pogo jump and golf swing your way to all sorts of riches. If you ask me, this Game Boy version was just as good as its NES counterpart. Yeah, pretty crazy they could cram all that NES goodness right into a Game Boy game. Yeah, very impressive indeed. All right, number 17, Mole Mania. It sounds like a dermatologist nightmare. <laughs> Not that kind of mole, Pete. No, this is about those mole creatures, the little ones that are underground or sometimes harassing Mario. Yeah, and in this game, you control a mole and you take them through this quirky but enjoyable puzzle action game from some uh, relatively obscure Nintendo developer by the name of Shigeru Miyamoto. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy, and it makes you wonder if, like, Monty Mole is sort of a throwback to him. Possibly. I mean, I think this game actually came out several years after Monty Mole was in the Mario games, but who knows? Maybe Miyamoto has a mole obsession. I don't know. But yes, you go above <laughs> ground and underground to uh, navigate the puzzle-like levels in this somewhat obscure adventure game. Again, not about flesh. Not about beauty marks. <laughs> Next up at number 16, we have Gargoyle's Quest, which combines top-down adventuring with side-scrolling action in a Capcom title. Basically, it's the formula of Zelda 2, but featuring one of those stinking red devils from the Ghosts and Goblins series. Well, technically, he's a black and white devil, or he's a green devil, depending on if you're <laughs> looking at the box art. But anyway, he could breathe fire, and he could fly, and he could climb walls, and it put a very different spin on the Ghosts and Goblins formula, and it was pretty darn fun and an excellent addition to the Game Boy Library. Yeah, this game was much better than it had any business being, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of weird that they spun it off of this random character from Ghosts and Goblins, but sure enough, it uh, worked. Yep, totally. All right, number 15, Metroid 2, Return of Samus. Yeah, I mean, I've got to admit, it's not as good as some of the other games in the Metroid series, and it's really hard to navigate without a map, and... If you leave the game for a while and come back to it, just forget about it. You're going to be totally lost and never know where you are. But still, it is a very solid entry in the series with some really clever and unique ideas. Introduced a lot of cool power-ups like the spider ball and the unique twist of having to hunt down and defeat all the remaining Metroids I thought was pretty darn cool. I'm glad that more people got to experience this game after it came out with the 3DS remake, Metroid Samus Returns. Yeah, pretty crazy to see a full-fledged sequel to a NES game that, you know, lived up to the hype. Kind of unbelievable, really. Well, I guess that's one way to look at it. But then again, we have the next one on our list, number 14, which is Kid Icarus of Myths and Monsters. And it did very much the same thing. <laughs> it's true, but in some ways, I don't feel like Myths and Monsters was quite the sequel that uh, Metroid 2 really was in storyline. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Whereas Metroid 2 was a direct sequel, 
uh, Kid Icarus of Myths and Monsters, in a lot of ways, kind of felt like a remake of sorts. But that's not to say that it was not a fantastic game. You know, it was uh, very similar, yet also distinct from the original. There was still a lot of vertical scrolling. There was still a lot of fortresses to explore. But it was also improved in a lot of ways. It was a little more forgiving. You know, if you accidentally press down and fall through the floor, actually the screen would scroll with you instead of just <laughs> automatically dying. Yep. And uh, your wings actually could help you extend your jump by flapping a little bit if you press the button. Yeah, I actually think that this version of Kid Icarus is a much more playable version. So anyone who wants to get into old school Kid Icarus should maybe start there. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I also think that the uh, final boss is pretty fantastic in this game. No, I've actually never reached the end. So uh, very interesting. Maybe one day I will. Better do it. Okay, okay. (laughs) All right, number 13, Operation C. Yeah, this was an all-new Contra game made specifically for the Game Boy. It was only single-player, which removed one of Contra's signature features, but still it had all of the run-and-gun action you could want, complete with weapons like the spread shot and the hunter gun, and it ran surprisingly smoothly for a Game Boy game. I mean, maybe not as fast as its console counterparts, but actually made it a little easier to survive, I would say. Anyway, it was a great version of Contra for the Game Boy, and you can play it these days on the recently released Contra collection. Yeah, amazing that they could stuff all that Contra action into a Game Boy game. (laughs) Yep, it was pretty impressive. And speaking of excellent Konami games on Game Boy, with number 12 we have Castlevania II Belmont's Revenge. This was a big improvement over the first Castlevania Game Boy game. It had much better variety. It had slightly faster gameplay. It had the inclusion of sub-weapons, which was missing from the first game. And all this helped bring this version of Castlevania to the next level compared to its predecessor. The themed stages you could tackle in any order were a big part of the appeal, and it just made the game very fun and very playable as far as portable Castlevania games go. Oh, and... Like we were saying with Contra, this one is playable on the recently released Castlevania collection on Switch. Yeah, and I never got to play this one, so I might just get my chance to sink my teeth into it shortly. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> All right, number 11, Kirby's Dreamland 2. Yeah, the first Kirby game was a solid, if simple, game, but this one really took it to the next level. This was the first one on Game Boy to include Kirby's copy abilities, obviously making for a much more satisfying game. Plus, this game also let Kirby ride on a giant hamster, and really, who wouldn't want to do that? (laughs) Now, was it Hamtaro? Uh, No, I'm afraid it was not. (laughs) Pretty sure it was Rick. Rick the hamster. (laughs) I think you're right. Next, at number 10, we have Mega Man, Dr. Wily's Revenge. This was the first Mega Man game on Game Boy, and it allowed one of the all-time NES greats to come to Nintendo's portable system. It basically remixed the original Mega Man game with four of those bosses making returns, but it had completely new level designs, it added new elements as well, and, of course, it made it portable. The result, predictably, was incredibly challenging, but tons and tons of fun. Yeah, again, Game Boy just comes up in spades with trying to, you know, basically recreate the NES experience on a handheld. And this one is right up there with the best. Yeah, for sure. Number nine, Pokemon Red, Blue, Yellow. Yes, probably for a lot of people, the number one reason to own a Game Boy. Yeah, honestly, I think a lot of people got introduced into the world of Game Boy with Pokemon Red, Blue, Yellow. Yeah, or the world of video games, period, you know. (laughs) that's true it was funny this game came out when i was 18 and i remember thinking um i don't know if this game's really for me but after playing it it definitely was yeah and you know even if it's not like somebody's personal favorite game it is hard to deny the impact that this game had i mean it basically revolutionized handheld gaming it started a brand new subgenre of rpgs with this collectible aspect to the gameplay and of course it set the world on fire not literally (laughs) with its lovable character designs i would say there is probably no better rpg on game boy than this yep you're right it is a must own all right well next on our list is another must own in fact a lot of people didn't have a choice whether they wanted to or not because that is tetris the original game boy pack-in (laughs) that's right tetris has been made for pretty much any device with a display on it but i think that this version somehow makes a run for being one of the best versions of tetris available 
Yeah, it's hard to think of a system better suited to Tetris's puzzle gameplay than the Game Boy. Yeah, it's an all-time classic, arguably the perfect game to be bundled with the system. It's intuitive, it's addictive, it's one of the best puzzle games ever, and it was fantastic in its Game Boy black and white form. All right, number seven, DuckTales. Is it my turn? Do I have to make the sound now? Yeah. Well, I'm not gonna. (laughs) Regardless, this was an excellent adaptation of the NES game. You know, we talked about DuckTales NES on episode not too long ago. It was a fantastic experience, and they basically took that same winning formula, but put in all new level layouts, so it felt totally different, but very similar. It took us to the same worlds, such as the moon, the Himalayas, the Amazon, and Transylvania, and it kept that same gameplay formula that worked so well on the NES game. It was an excellent, excellent port. Honestly, there's not much else to say. All right, well, that brings us to number six, which is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Fall of the Foot Clan. Ah, yes. I remember this one vividly. You could go in and out of the sewer. You could uh, pick up pizza by the slice or by the whole pie. (laughs) That's true. And I remember those dang pesky uh, Mausers or whatever they call them. Uh Yep, they were all in there. I mean, that was the thing that made this game really good, I think. I mean, there was already the NES game out there, but the NES game, in a lot of respects didn't really feel like Ninja Turtles, like some of the designs, like what are these? They don't look like any of the characters I know from the cartoon or anything. Also, the gameplay was kind of terrible, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) What I liked about Fall the Foot Clan was it, it really did have the visuals and the music and the characters that were all faithfully reproducing the cartoon and the toy. And more importantly than that, the action was just plain fun. It was very simple, it was very straightforward, but it was in a super polished package with fun enemies and fun bosses, and it was just a blast to play. Yeah, and it was really surprising how big the character sprites were for this game being on Game Boy. But as you mentioned, the, the graphics were really good. They actually uh, you know, did the Ninja Turtles justice. Yeah, for sure. Number five, Super Mario Land 2, Six Golden Coins. Yes, another all-time classic. Whereas the first Super Mario Land kind of felt a little bit like off-brand Mario, this truly felt like Mario in portable form. It looked great, it played great, it had cool and creative power-ups, and it delivered a unique Mario experience unlike anything else that was out there. Also, this was the first game that gave us Wario. That's right, and if you remember the marketing for it, you got to hear the Obey Wario, destroy Mario. (laughs) That's right, that's right. So next, at number four, we have Donkey Kong. I feel like we have talked about this game on the podcast often enough that by now everyone knows that this game took the premise of the original Donkey Kong, the arcade game, and just expand upon it with way, way, way more levels, way more moves, way more responsive controls, and this puzzle element mixed in with the platforming that easily made this one of the best games on Game Boy. Yeah, it really is weird. Carrying the name Donkey Kong just almost didn't do it justice. And it was kind of before the era where they really gave all games subtitles. Mm -hmm. So it does. It's kind of a bummer because I feel like a lot of people might not have played this one just because thinking, oh, you know, it's Donkey Kong on Game Boy. Well, I already have that. Yeah, there's a lot more to it than that. And it is on 3DS Virtual Console. So if you did miss out on it so far, well, you still kind of have a chance to experience it if you didn't do so back in the day. Yeah, it is a great game. Indeed. Number three. Mario's Picross. Yeah, I mean, it might sound like crazy talk having this game at number three. (laughs) And I remember when it first came out and I saw pictures of Nintendo Power, I'm like, what's this thing here with numbers and grids? This looks boring. (laughs) I don't care about this game. I didn't play it for years. And then when I finally did, it was like, oh my gosh, this is one of the most addictive puzzle games ever. I just couldn't get enough of it. And it's very simple. And like I said, just look at the screenshots. It looked kind of dull, but man, it is so much fun. It is always satisfying to complete these puzzles and turn it into an image. It's really, really great. Yeah, Nintendo's released Picross on a lot of consoles, but I believe that... Well, I mean, but not in the U.S., though. I mean, this is really where it's at, you know? (laughs) No, totally. And honestly, this is kind of the one that set it off for us all, really. Very true. I just wish they would bring those other ones on the other platforms that remain exclusive to Japan over here one of these days. Yeah, no kidding. Would be nice to be able to get a hands on it. Indeed, indeed. Anyway, we are down to number two, and the game is Mega Man 5. 
This was the first totally original Mega Man game on Game Boy. It was not just a remix or a rehash of NES Mega Man titles. Of course, it did feature the same signature action and platforming and weapon-stealing abilities and uh, the same addictive gameplay, but this time it was with a whole new host of planet-themed enemies. Yes, you did get to fight Uranus. <laughs> and also, I believe Mega Man had a pet robot cat as well. So for those reasons, this is easily the best Mega Man game on Game Boy and uh, one of the best Game Boy games overall. Yep, it's hard to go wrong with a formula like that. Indeed. All right, I guess that brings us to number one. Yes. And if you have been keeping track, this should be very obvious. But uh, go ahead, Pete. Let them know what it is. It's very obvious and it's very fitting. The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. Yes. This is a game, of course, we have talked about a ton over the course of the podcast. When we did our Countdown of Favorite Game Boy Color Games probably a year ago, the DX version was our number one title in that list. But yeah, it is basically everything you would want from a Zelda game, but in portable form. The great puzzles, the great sword play, the great tools. It had fun dungeons. It had creative environments. It had interesting characters. It had imaginative (laughs) enemies. It is just a great Zelda game all the way around, and it would be a very strong contender for number one on any platform. Yeah, and I think just the fact that it kind of added some elements from some of the other franchises Nintendo had. It's very That's off- right. It had Mario characters, it had Kirby characters. It's a very offbeat Zelda game, but for some reason it just hit all the numbers right. Yeah, I mean it was really quirky and really goofy, but it totally totally works. Yep, and that's why it's our number 1. Yep. It's also why I can't wait for the Switch remake that comes out in less than a month. Yes, very timely indeed, and I just pre-ordered mine the other day. All right, excellent. Anyway, that brings us to the end of our list of top 30 Game Boy games. Obviously, we weren't able to include every excellent game on this list. So if there's one you think we have left off and done a great injustice to, please write in and let us know what some of the other greatest Game Boy games were from the past 30 years. Yeah, and make fun of Hoffman in the process. I'm probably just going to edit that out. (laughs) Anyway, with that said, it is just about time for us to wrap up this episode of the podcast. But before we do so, we do have time for one more thing. And Pete, I think you know what that is. Oh, you know I do. It is a dramatic reading. And this time, it comes from the eShop description of the Switch game, Animal Fight Club. Invent your animals and create an army. Invent new creatures by mixing real or legendary animals in thousands of possible combinations. Create an army and get ready to fight. Create your army. With dozens of different types of animals at your disposal, generates an unbeatable army of genetically modified animals. Thanks to the power of the mix machine, you will be able to combine pairs of animals. The result? the possibility of inventing hundreds of totally new and unique animals for your army. (laughs) Each animal has its statistics, its health and its strengths and weaknesses. Mix them intelligently to get the most powerful creatures. Over 1,000 possible combinations, the generation of new creatures has no limits. Mission Editor. Create new missions with custom armies, waves, maps, and music. Fantastic Scenarios. Large variety of maps and scenarios related to the campaign mode, with fantastic and innovative locations. The panorama is an important point in the style of Animal Fight Club. Uh, this game sounds amazing by the name alone. That's really why I picked it. It pretty much has the best name for a video game I've ever come across. (laughs) It also kind of, to me, shows me why, like, it's amazing that Pokemon succeeded. Like, <laughs> like it sounds so basic, but like, you know, look at this company, like totally goofed this thing up. I mean, here's my question. What the heck is this game about? I mean, I know you can combine animals and build an army, but I have zero idea what the gameplay is. Like, is it like Pokemon? Is it a real-time strategy game? Right. Is it a turn-based strategy game? Is it a beat-em-up? Yeah, is it a beat-em-up? Is it an action game? I don't know. You can have custom scenarios, but I have no idea what kind of gameplay you have in it at all. But that doesn't really matter when your game is called 
Animal Fight Club, <laughs> which again, you know, deserves a purchase on the title alone. Um, I, I'm thinking about going to buy that URL if they haven't already. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, that's money right there. <laughs> anyway, that does it for this week. As always, you can find us at powerpros.podbean.com and you can follow us at powerprospod on both Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me, The Hoff, on Twitter at Chris the Hoff, and you can find Pete and his beard at Burly Red Yeti. You can email us at powerprospod at gmail.com, and if you like the podcast, it would be great, of course, if you told your friends about us. Thanks for listening, everybody. For myself, Pete Michaud. Yeah, shiver me timbers. And Team Orders Marina. It's we will see you next time.